Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. After a temporary break over the holidays and for the Omicron wave of COVID-19, we are so glad to be back in the studio for episode 25. Now today we're going to dive into a topic that prior to COVID-19 was absolutely at the forefront of health policy issues, the opioid epidemic. And as we hopefully move into what I call late pandemic stage, We are recognizing the exacerbating effect that the disruption and isolation from COVID-19 has had on those who were already struggling with addiction. In 2020, there were almost 92,000 drug overdose deaths. That's 21,000 more than in any previous year. This has put the nation on pace to exceed the highest number of overdose deaths in any single year for 2021. This setback in the progress that states were seeing prior to the pandemic is not solely due to COVID-19, but also due to the emergence of potent synthetic opioids such as fentanyl that are increasingly mixed and sometimes unknowingly with other drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine. In fact, fentanyl-laced cocaine was the culprit in recent overdoses of five West Point cadets on vacation in Florida. Among the policy levers to curb the opioid epidemic has been the use of litigation to deter manufacturers, distributors, and retail pharmacies from practices that overplayed the benefits of opioids and downplayed the risks. As we discussed in a previous episode, nationwide opioid litigation is seeing some success, with courts recently approving settlements against Purdue, Johnson & Johnson, and several other distributors. However, there are multiple other policies and programs that have been implemented over the last decade that are aimed at prevention, treatment, and harm reduction. So, here to talk with us about those efforts is Kirk Lang, who was appointed as the state's drug director for Arkansas in 2017. Prior to his appointment, he was chief of police for the city of Benton and worked for the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office for 22 years. He attended both the University of Virginia and the University of Arkansas Little Rock, and is a graduate of the Arkansas Law Enforcement Academy, the Drug Enforcement Administration's Drug Commanders Academy, and the FBI National Academy 197th session. All right, welcome to the show, Director Lane, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. So before we get to the more serious stuff, I want to know what keeps you busy when you're not working. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm an avid avid outdoorsman and uh, hunting and fishing, kayaking, and uh, I have a strong uh, addiction to cast iron. So I do a lot with cast, cast iron, iron cookware and uh, the history of it and, and refurbishing it. So oh, so refurbishing it, not just, you know, using it to cook with. Cook with it, collect it, uh, buy and sell it, uh, go to auctions. Uh, I just really enjoy so it. So roughly how many pieces do you have? 
I have probably two to three hundred of my own and probably have gone through probably a thousand to two thousand the last two or three years. Wow. So how do you refurbish that? That's Oh, it, there's different processes of chemicals, but a lot of it's just the uh, elbow grease uh, and yeah. uh, a good steel wood pad. You know, the, I, I love those things. You know, <laughs> making a good breakfast. In a, oh, that's it. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, so another thing I have to ask. So, what's your favorite fish to catch? <laughs> well, I, uh, I I like to saltwater fish. Okay. Uh, I've really gotten into saltwater fishing in the last uh, five or six years. So. Uh, uh, I caught a marlin a couple of years ago. Oh. Uh, sailfish are always oh, the top. I don't know if uh, the bigger the better, the way I look at it. So. <laughs> All right. I try to stay away from the sharks. Yeah, though. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you deal with that on a regular da- daily yeah, basis, right? On so, a daily basis. Yeah. All right. So I asked this of all of our wonky guests. I want to know what you would say is your theme song. So, uh, I saw that, so I I think I'm a Eye of the Tiger guy with Survivor. Oh, so yeah. it's always Rocky. Yeah. I kind of grew up with that, so it's always been something I always listen to and turn up. Yeah. Great song. Great song. All right. So tell us about your role as the state's drug director um, and. I don't even, I didn't know the answer to this question, so I thought I would ask you, how long have we had a drug director? You know, I believe that we've had uh, the drug director's office since the early 80s. I know it came in with the influx of asset forfeiture when that passed, and also the drug task forces. Okay. And they needed a person to keep track of those responsibilities. It's a a legislative outline position. But over the years, it had uh, changed and modified with different directors, and in my tenure, they added prevention treatment, uh, which has now uh, also gone into recovery um, to those uh, list of duties that I have. Okay, okay. Um, so, and this has probably been in flux since the beginning of the drug director position too, just dealing with different different drugs. So what are the major drug-related issues in Arkansas currently and are the issues that we are experiencing different than some of those in other states? Sure. So uh, I would say not different than any other states. There's different stages that states go through. And, okay. and Arkansas um, has been blessed to really get an eyeful of what the other states are having to deal with before it really comes into yeah. Arkansas. So I would say we're about two to three years behind the other states and a lot of our uh, trends and what we're doing. Unfortunately, uh, I think the major issue is that drugs today aren't what they were 10 years ago. Uh, They've become deadly. Uh, They've become dangerous. Overdose seems to be uh, the biggest factor that we're dealing with and the most concerned. Uh, Arkansas's number one drug threat has been methamphetamine, Mm -hmm. Uh, but our most deadliest drug threat is fentanyl. And now we're seeing mixtures or polydrug combinations of those and also fentanyl mixed into any drug. So I think it becomes important to realize that any drug use today could be a deadly one, Mm -hmm. whether it's uh, using marijuana, whether it's using cocaine, or whether it's taking a pill that uh, you get off the street. Um, It could be laced with fentanyl or some type of other synthetic that we're seeing in the last two or three weeks. Yeah, it's just just in the last two or three weeks, wow. So I was gonna say, it's, 
you know, you, you see technology advances in, in every other parts of our mm-hmm. life, and, and the drug industry is no different, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it really is no different, but, the you know, the perfect storm of it is is that fentanyl and these synthetic drugs that can be produced in a, a laboratory or a mm-hmm. clandestine laboratory, and a lot of them being done by the Mexican cartel, mm-hmm. uh, where they don't have to grow poppies out in the field that can be exposed to law enforcement or the mm-hmm. government. Uh, interaction with them. Uh, now it's all in a small lab and sold for or produced for a very cheap price and then sold at a very cheap price with a large amount of profit. Mm. Um, a little bit goes a long way and, and money and uh, is the name of the game when it comes to drug dealing. Yeah. Yeah. So so I mentioned uh, the impacts of COVID-19 in, in the intro all I've got is just a bunch of stats, and, and I want to know your, your perspective on this. Well, uh, it was a game changer, and, and, I'll, and I will say there's some positives and negatives to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. The negative side is, is that before COVID-19 came in, we were at 352 overdose deaths in Arkansas. So not making light of the numbers, those were 352 brothers, sisters, moms, yeah. dads, children that we lost. Um, and so I'm a numbers guy, and yep. so I have to really uh, relate myself to that. And we were one of, in 19, before COVID, we were one of five states that had a 17% decrease in overdose death. So we were doing something yeah. right. Yeah. Um, COVID came in, isolation, desperation. Uh, a lot of facilities that uh, helped with recovery and treatment um, protected in place. So they yeah. reduced their populations. Operations one of the, disrupted. One and, of yeah. the main principles of recovery is being able to share and being able to support each other because lack of support leads to uh, serious issues with substance use disorder. So we started seeing that coupled with an increase of just in time and place of illicit fentanyl coming into Arkansas was that time for Arkansas. And so what we did is went from a 17% decrease in one year to a 35% increase Mm -hmm. in overdose death just in 2020. Uh, We have yet to get the numbers in 2021, but I fear that it's going to be higher than that uh, just because the numbers that on the preliminary side that I've seen and naloxone saves that we've been doing had almost doubled in that same year. So as much as we rejoice in the fact that we save twice as many people, we know the reality is uh, that a lot more people were overdosing and we've heard too many stories right. about 21. So we're fearful for that. I think the positives is is a lot of people became very health conscious, became very family oriented because they were back living at home, they were keeping up with each other. So health issues um, came to the forefront. So a lot of our work was changing our messaging, trying to uh, focus in on those audiences, trying to find ways to connect through social media mm-hmm. and, and different avenues where we weren't that strong on. Mm-hmm. The second thing was we realized that every day um, that you could uh, look on television and find out how many people died from COVID-19, how many people had been uh, gotten their shots, uh, had been hospitalized, yeah. all that data was on there. And we realized that that was a possibility because what we're dealing with now is data is so important in this battle. Um, 
that we need to find a way to do it in that essence so we can really address problems. Yeah, you've, you've got some great stories, which are which are very important mm-hmm. in, in saves and people whose lives sure. it, it's impacted. But the data combined with that, right. it makes a very powerful message. And, and we're getting good support in from the federal government as far as uh, monies and, and, and concepts they want that plugged into. So that data is really important to put that money into areas um, that are affected uh, now mm-hmm. and not the data that happened two years ago. Right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> we experience that all the time in, in, in my work. Um, so what are some of the policy changes that that Arkansas has, has put in place uh, to address the epidemic, and how successful do you think that these policies have been? You know, we did a lot of things early on. We we looked at our prescribing rate. We we're sec- we're still the second highest prescribing rate in the nation, but we've come down quite a bit. Right. Uh, even though we're at the lowest point we've been in 15 years or 16 years, um, we're still the second highest prescribing state. We're at 86.3 opioid prescriptions for every hundred people, and the national average is 46.7. Yeah. So we know we have work to do. We we implemented and developed the prescription drug monitoring program mm-hmm. to be more efficient, to really as a tool to help prescribers uh, keep track of what they're doing, prescribe smarter, uh, prescriber education as we were dealing with the fact that we realized that Arkansas was a very opioid dependent state. And so we were trying to give that good information to those prescribers to help them pull us out of that deal. Uh, but then the illicit fentanyl and heroin yeah. really hit our state. So uh, we uh, have not switched gears, but we added to our arsenal naloxone and and those abilities in naloxone and empowering naloxone um, from a first responder level, whether that be a law enforcement officer or, or fire department or EMS, but also everyday people can be that first responder. Everyday people can be that hero. And so that's what we're working on now, trying to really push that out into communities and get that buy-in uh, to get somebody to breathe. And we had to kind of shift our mindset to uh, saving lives uh, yeah. and, and how important that was on the front end. Um, and so that's kind of where we're working. Yeah, from, from prevention to harm reduction to saving lives. It's, yeah, and it's I think, important. and I want to be careful with harm reduction, but uh, because there's some aspects of it, there's a division there, sure. but some aspects aspects of it, like naloxone, I believe in, but some of it I do not. Yeah, and uh, there there are reasons for that. Okay, so are there other other policies in in some other states that we haven't put in place that you think would that we Sure. I, I think other states have looked at uh, recovery, and I think that's one of the things uh, that we looked at. You know, early on, you always heard the adage that you can't arrest your way out of that problem. Or now we're hearing that uh, treatment, can we prescribe our way out of our problem? Um, but one thing we're realizing with recovery, using a peer recovery specialist, somebody that has been through the fire, uh, has now found recovery and found abstinence, can really help and relate to those people that are struggling with this disease. And I think we need to look at it and focus on it that it was the disease. So uh, stigma and what they're doing with that, building recovery resources within the state of recovery housing and recovery community organizations and something that we're really looking strong to do. And I think uh, as we're seeing right now, Arkansas may take off as a leader in that mm-hmm. field uh, because of the buy-in that we have in the state, not only from the people in recovery, but for employers and different people mm-hmm. that are, 
are seeing the reality and the need for this and buying into that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I often hear from, you know, providers out in the state and um, Medicaid beneficiaries and others that there are a lack of treatment options for opioid and, and substance use more generally, particularly in inpatient. What's, what's, what's your perspective on that? Well, I know in 2017 that was one of the things that we looked at, and we measured that the fact that we only had 75 what they call ex-wavered, um, D- ex-wavered DEA providers in the state that could provide MAT. Mm-hmm. And MAT so, being? Uh, medication-assisted treatment. Thank you. <laughs> Just helping our listeners. And so uh, we found that the whole thing was stigma, uh, lack of education. Uh, we went into a partnership with Dr. Mancino at UAMS, who's mm-hmm. done a fabulous job of going around the state uh, and his team educating uh, physicians, and now we have close to 500 oh, wow. uh, MAT uh, uh, prescribers in our state. Maybe not all of them practicing, but for the most part, a lot of them were. Uh, and so our goal was to at least have one in every county, and we're getting very close to that. That's good. That's good. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, you mentioned naloxone earlier, which mm-hmm. I want to make sure that everybody knows. That's the drug that counters the the effects of, of an opioid overdose. But it's certainly widely considered an effective uh, strategy uh, in this space. Can you tell us about some of the programs in place or plan to get naloxone in the in the hands of, of those who need it? Sure. So we, we had a number of programs. One, we aimed at first responders, which were uh, trying to affect the largest number of people uh, as, as quickly as we could. And so we aimed at our first responders, our law enforcement, our fire. EMS had already had naloxone, mm. uh, and it became a little bit of a turf battle, but we got through that, uh, and uh, we got our first responders on board with it. And I would say we have about 70% of the law enforcement agencies in the state uh, adopted it and developed policy. We were able to provide and train them. And today, in that one program, we have uh, 1,402 saves as of yesterday Wow! Uh, over the last three years. So, um, and then we expanded it from that school nurses, librarians, um, different people in different um, state and government jobs or, or in community jobs that we thought would have the biggest effect of people. Uh, we're now working programs into treatment centers uh, that affect people in recovery and families that are dealing with people in recovery or, or trying to get in recovery. Mm-hmm. And now moving into hospital ER uh, because a lot of people are coming in there overdosed. And then at, the rule was once they were physically fit to leave, they would leave without any resources. So uh, we thought that was a good pace to, to, to directly put that Narcan where it was going to be used the best to try to save lives. And then moving to another uh, program that we're calling the Lox Box that you'll see in the future is actually being able to provide naloxone in a, in a box that we would put next to a defibrillator in uh, businesses, event centers, uh, schools, uh, resources where anybody could get to it that was trained. Yeah. And I think lastly, uh, the development of an app called Narcansol. Uh, which you can download for free. That gives you resources to understanding opioids, uh, the effects of opioids, treatment, prevention, resources, and most importantly, there's a button on there you can push that says Rescue Now, and it will walk you through how to save somebody with Mm. naloxone 
depending on the type of naloxone you have, it will dial 911 for you if you want it to, so you can get rescue coming. But it will walk you, and I say talk you through steps, because it actually speaks to you in English oh. or Spanish. Huh. Wow. So download the Narkansaw That's app, it. Right? I got to plug that app. Yeah. All right. So you, you mentioned this this briefly, uh, some of the harm reduction strategies like uh, like uh, syringe service programs, um, safe injection sites, that s- some of which is happening in, in some of the other states. Can you tell us about those and, and could you see Arkansas ever adopting those strategies? I think so. I think it's it's in the future. I think harm reduction for us is a, a reality has been the naloxone program. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we went, my, and myself and the Department of Health went through to Kentucky and studied uh, syringe service programs. I think there is some win-win in that because somebody that was interested in having a clean syringe cares enough about themselves to have that. So I think it's how we pair that. kind of like we do treatment, uh, just trying to prescribe it and letting that person go out. It may be not the best result, but partnering those uh, syringe service program or even on treatment side with a peer recovery specialist to really talk to that person. Because a lot of times people are trying to find a way out. Uh, They just haven't figured it out and nobody's there to support them to do that. That comes from where they're standing. And so partnering with that peer, and that's why we're focusing a lot of our attention on peer recovery specialists uh, to be that person that helps those people. So to me, that's kind of, recovery is kind of part of harm reduction. Um, I'm not an advocate of of just giving people syringes and hiding them in the woods or fentanyl test strips and things like that because I really haven't seen any conclusive data that it's really saving lives like I have the other. And so I think it's important that we put that money where it works the best and not maybe what's popular uh, second. And I think a lot of times when you don't do it right, especially when it comes to syringe services or fentanyl test strips, that you give the misconception that drugs are safe. And so say somebody's a methamphetamine user Mm -hmm. and they uh, check their methamphetamine and it doesn't have fentanyl in it, we need to remember that fentanyl is the second leading cause of overdose death in our state. So that just the fact that it doesn't have fentanyl in it doesn't mean it's safe. Yeah. And with fentanyl in everything now, uh, I think prevention is best policy is we need to try to get at some point to the concept of uh, adopting that drug use is not safe and we should not do it. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where we're coming from. Okay. All right. So, um, so what are some of the near-term policy changes, uh, whether that's here in Arkansas or federal or, or local, that, that you'd like to see? I'd like to see uh, some type of mandate or, or something involving our data um, in a process that was similar to what we know we can do during COVID. That data is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, we lost several grants based upon the fact that they've become competitive mm-hmm. and we can't compete with old data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to use the money effectively and put it where it's needed and be able to measure with good data. And if you have good data, that requires people to have buy-in. Uh, so it brings together people that normally didn't work together to make sure it comes in properly. So uh, to me, that's the number one priority to do that data. Second to that, I, I think we need to look at um, uh, different aspects of where we're going with normalization of drugs. 
in different capacities where we, what we did with medical marijuana, uh, we didn't implement any uh, THC levels in there. And some of the states that legalized medical marijuana are real, realizing that now. And because that's become a factor in a lot of the different issues that we're having, especially, and that was lessons learned from people in recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, people in recovery are struggling with the fact that these triggers are out there that we are creating and the normalization is making it difficult for those people to recover. Hmm. So in respect to them, I'd like to, to really look at some policy changes uh, driven towards those focuses on where we're going with that. Okay. Okay. So now this final question is thinking a bit more globally, but it might relate to your current work. So when you look back on, on all that you've done in your career, what are you going to be the most proud of? I think, to me, is where you leave it. The people that you worked with, uh, I think I'm the most proud of, of helping develop um, people that I have worked with or maybe oversaw uh, to be those leaders of tomorrow and hoping that they will take it to the next level that I couldn't reach. And I think that's what I'm most proud of. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the work that you do, Director Lane. And we're glad to have you and glad to have you back sometime. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Wonks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, please email us at achi at achi.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. And again, thanks for listening.